Good evening, everybody. All right, so I am going to dive right in, and the reason is, is I want to maximize our time. Uh, again, we are, the plan is, hopefully, um, it's going to be a little different tonight if, if we can, if time allows. So the plan is to, to do the teaching aspect first, break up into small groups, and then if we have time, I'd like to have a Q&A where everyone who's taught uh, is able to ask question, uh, answer questions that you might have. So that might be something that's really helpful uh, as well. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right in. Uh, appreciate you coming out for this final session of Love Thy Body. We've had some amazing teaching and discussion the last three weeks. Um, you know, my hat's off to Pastor Carol and Mike Sassy for, for covering their topics. And in each week, we've had some great discussions. For those interested, we have notes from the last two sessions here up front, uh, as well as um, we still have some free complimentary copies of this book that we compiled from our class two years ago on biblical sexuality. So those are free, uh, so feel free to, um, to take those, um, and hopefully that'll be edifying to you. So I want to just touch on a little bit of what I touched on about uh, in, in week one and kind of just re- remind us of the big picture overview and the purpose. And, and one of the main purposes of, this, of the book as well as this class, Love Thy Body, is to make the case that Christianity makes a holistic and and sustains a holistic and unified definition of human beings made in the image of God. As we heard from Pastor Carol last week, human beings are, we are tripartite beings. We are spirit, soul, and body that form a unified person. Um, And so much of what we're discussing and what Piercy covers in the book is is opposite of that. It's a fragmented view of humanity where the body is seen as something uh, from the overall identity from the person. Uh, as we talked about in week one, we, we need to have, we need to understand and have strong uh, life-affirming arguments to engage these issues. Um, this is where the world is right now. This is where our friends, family, and coworkers and neighbor, neighbors are and the hope to, throughout this whole class, and again, I commend the book to you because we can only go so deep in the time we have, but the, the hope is that we are equipping you um, with, with confidence to engage people in a loving way. And one of the main challenges that we face related to these issues that we've been talking about is just the sheer speed with which things are changing in our culture. Um, it, it's hard to stay up with the latest developments it's hard to know the language. It's hard to know the terminology. And it's also hard to know the implications for institutions, for work, for school, uh, for our, our political climate. Uh, but most important, it's, it's how do we um, stay engaged in the mission, in making disciples of Jesus Christ and being ambassadors of the kingdom of God. So one of the things is we need to gain knowledge, right? We need to understand the arguments from the inside out. But more than persuasive arguments, we need to see people who are struggling currently or will be struggling with these issues in the future as human beings made in the image of God who have incredible value and worth. So I want to help us focus on the two main things we want to accomplish with this class, and that's education and engagement, or another way of saying that is truth and love. And the tone, again, that we want to set for tonight, and, and really has been the tone for this whole class, is one of, of hope. Uh, we have a life-affirming message, so 
uh, we have a, a, a tone and attitude of hope in seeing these things as an opportunity that lie before us. Um, if you remember the analogy of the uh, culture war versus the rescue mission, right? The culture war is, um, is the argument, it's the shouting, it's the, the fruitless conversations on social media versus seeing people, again, made in the image of God, uh, as we've been hearing lately, people for whom Christ died for, uh, that we are on a rescue mission. So keep that motif in mind that we're on a rescue mission versus the culture war. And, and the, the purpose of this class really is under the umbrella of what our mission is as a church to make disciples um, who go on in turn and make disciples and multiply. And our purpose is not to persuade people to change their behavior. Okay, really our purpose here in apologetics is to tear down barriers to becoming a Christian. Uh, and that's why we need to keep our motivation pure. If you're out to win an argument instead of winning the person, we're really, we're really missing the point. And we believe that the Bible speaks to all of reality, including this particular issues. And that's why it's important to spend this time, and I commend you to, 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 to make this a, a part of your life, is growing in the area of building a biblical worldview. And we touched on week one that building a biblical worldview um, is an act of worship, right? It's um, Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself, right? So tonight, my topic is how worldview affects our understanding of two important issues in our culture homosexuality, and gender identity. You know, these issues are at the forefront right now uh, of the culture, and my emphasis is going to be on understanding the secular worldview from the inside out. In other words, understanding where they're coming from and how they got to where they are. Um, so um, some notes there that are with you, just, um, just to commend those to you. You don't have to take a lot of notes. I put a lot in there for you. Killed a lot of trees tonight on that, sorry. Um, but worldview is um, a particular philosophy of life or a perception of the world. It's how we view the world. And I put in there a, a quote from Francis Schaeffer uh, from 1981 and how he defines a biblical worldview. It says, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that truth and then living in light of that truth, which is a, a wonderful way of framing up what a biblical worldview is. So in week one, we learned two important tools that are going to help us going forward. The tool number one is the reality grid. Uh, we discussed the, the concept that that worldview being the lens and the filter with which we interpret the world around us, every system of thought, every philosophy, every worldview uh, must account for three key aspects of reality. Creation, right? Where did it come from? What was its original purpose? Uh, number two, the fall. Uh, what is the source of evil and suffering, right? How, how did things get to be as bad as they are? It, how has it been corrupted by uh, sin and false worldviews? And third is redemption. How can we bring this aspect of the world under the lordship of Jesus, right, and help be an agent of restoring it back to its original purpose? So that's tool number one is a three-part reality grid. And tool number two 
we discussed was the two-story grid to analyze the modern division of truth. You know, Francis Schaeffer, we know, had a big influence on Nancy Piercy. He observes that the modern concept of truth itself has been divided uh, in, in a process that he illustrates with the two-story building. And, and uh, up until recently, well, recently, but interacting with that is the, the lower story has been portrayed as um, the, the, the science and reason. It, it's, it's objective. It's valid for everyone. Um, and it's considered binding on everyone. It's public truth. And compared to that, over and against that, is the upper story of what he calls non-cognitive experience, right? This is where the locus, the centrality of, of personal meaning is. This is the realm of private truth. And this is where you hear people say, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. And you can see there the, the graphic. And it's this fact-value split that's used to keep religion and theology from impacting the public debate. And the goal really uh, for, from uh, the secular perspective is to make, make religion something you just do in private, right? It's, just, it's, you, it's fine if you practice your religion, just, just keep it private uh, and isolate it in the upstairs uh, story. And so the concept of truth has been divided, uh, as we talked about, and really what that is called is dualism. And I put in there the definition of dualism. The dualism is the division of something conceptually into two opposed or con contrasted aspects. So I'm just going to do a quick review of some of our dualistic truth heritage. Now, again, for more details on this, please listen or watch session one. We touched on Platonism, right? This is the, the ancient school of thought uh, traced back to Plato. And just re real quickly, uh, there was a, a stark division between the physical realm and the spiritual realm, and basically it was treating the physical as less value, less valuable than uh, the spiritual realm. And we talked about matter versus forms, right? And we remember we had the analogy of the cathedral, the beautiful cathedral with all the details, uh, but what was really more valuable in that analogy is the form, is the ideas, is the blueprint in the architect's head. Um, and, and really... In, in that viewpoint, form or, or the, the intellectual concepts of it has more value than the, the, the actual physical matter, right? So there's the upstairs, downstairs division. Um, the second um, um, f school of thought that we engaged in is, is an ancient form also. This is Gnosticism. Uh, this is one of the earliest um, worldviews that was uh, around during the early church that w the church was battling. And really what this means is gnosis means knowledge. Uh, and just basically real quick is um, sp spirit, good, body, or physical world, bad. And basically the way that you gain salvation in the Gnostic worldview is gaining this experience, this knowledge of the divine. So one, to achieve salvation, one escapes by gaining knowledge or gnosis, all right? So again, the upstairs, downstairs. Spirit is good, body is bad. And then we talked about Darwinism, uh, which is, if you remember, we talked about Daniel Dennett. He called that the universal acid that eats through everything. Um, and, and Darwinism rests on two foundational views. First is naturalism, which is the system of thought that all phenomena can be explained in terms of natural causes and laws. And it also rests on another foundation is materialism in the view that the only thing that exists is matter. Okay. 
So we, we've all dealt with Darwinism, and, and I won't go into detail there again, but basically what it comes down to is every school of thought that we've engaged in has had at its heart a devastating two-story division between uh, two-story separation of truth. So tonight I want to introduce you to two important thinkers that Piercy highlights as having uh, the biggest impact today on issues of personhood and sexuality. And the first of those thinkers is Rene Descartes. Now he lived in the early 17th century and he's often been considered the, the one of the fathers of modern Western philosophy. Uh, and his, his thinking really changed the course of, of Western thought. And he, basically what he did is he shifted the authority and the origin of truth from God to humanity. Uh, even though he claimed that s- some of his revelation was from God. And the way that he explained this change was to modify the terms. So the traditional concept of truth which implies an, an external reality, uh, an external authority. He's replaced that with the concept of certainty. It's a subtle change, but certainty instead relies on the judgment of the individual. And you can see there in the graphic, in our two-story metaphor, Descartes then placed the body in the lower story, conceiving it as a machine, and the upper story, Uh, He placed the human mind. That's the realm of thinking. That's the realm of perception, emotion, and will. In his words, the mind is a rational soul united to this machine. This is where the phrase ghost in the machine originated. If you've ever heard that, this is the origin of that. And Descartes is best known for his phrase, I think, therefore I am, which basically is I'm creating my reality by my thinking. Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain explained, quote, Cartesian dualism breaks man up into two complete substances. On the one hand, the body, which is only a geometrical extension. On the other, the soul, which is only thought. The human being is split asunder. So Descartes, according to Piercy, is the modern father of this secular dualistic separation between the body and the person. So that's the first thinker that's important to consider on these issues. The second is Immanuel Kant. He was an 18th century German philosopher, uh, actually spent more of his time writing about uh, science than philosophy. Uh, But Kant categorized humans into two different worlds. Same thing, this this separation. And the lower story was the same kind of familiar concept of of nature, it's, it's the deterministic machine motif that we just talked about from Descartes. But in the upper story, humans operate in the world of freedom as free agents who make moral decisions. But Kant went further by saying that the lower story, the world of nature, is actually a creation of the mind, right? The world appears to be lawful and ordered, but that's only because our mind creates that order. And it's from Kant that the seeds of postmodernism were sown. Now, modernism is, is what we've been talking about um, in the sense that it was grounded in the lower story of objective truth and fact, right, and, and that, um, that your, your theology, your morals is the upstairs story, right, and that, that was b- the, and that the downstairs were binding everyone. But postmodernism claims that truth is relative, 
right? There's no objective truth. That truth is relative, and what we know of reality are nothing more than social constructs, right? In other words, they're, 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 something, they're things that we make up, and they're fluid, and they're easily changed. Now, this is very important because according to Kant, we don't live in a world structured by God. We live in a world structured by human consciousness, right? It's what we think about is what creates reality. And he made the mind absolute, treating it as the ultimate reality to which everything must conform. Now, according to Piercy, for Kant, the enlightened self is completely autonomous, in the literal sense of the word, a law unto oneself, auto, self, nomos, law, autonomous, right? So this is very important switch in everything that we've been talking about. So now what has happened with the postmodern viewpoint, the postmodern way of thinking, is that there's been a reversal. Now, it's not the bottom, what can be tested, what can be verified, that has authority. It's now the upstairs. It's what you think, it's what you feel, it's what your emotions tell you. And, and the issues that we've discussed related to sexuality, the hookup culture, uh, uh, abortion and life issues, and tonight's topic, they're not being driven by the bottom anymore. They're not being driven by science, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, but these issues are being driven by feelings, desires, and emotion. And so this, this postmodern worldview is going to be our jumping off point for our discussion about homosexuality and transgenderism. Camille Paglia is a self-described pagan lesbian uh, who defends homosexuality by saying, quote, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claims to our bodies and may do as we see fit. So really it's a question of authority, right? Uh, think about Judges chapter 17 in the first six verses. We have an example of what happens when we reject God, when we create idols and create our own private religion, culminating in verse 6, quote, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's where we are today. Second Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Again, that describes where we are. Okay. So let's talk about the first issue, homosexuality. Piercy talks about uh, what, of, of the, what she calls the gay script. Okay, And that basically is people... Um, coming out as being, quote, their authentic selves and, and that they will be truly fulfilled if they embrace their same-sex desires. And we have to admit it's become a very powerful narrative. Um, <laughs> look at entertainment, look at television, listen to music. Um, it is a very powerful narrative. But when did the concept of sexual identity as our core, when did that originate? She does a great job of looking at the historical progression on this issue, and she quotes from a book by, by the historian uh, Jonathan Ned Katz from his book called The, the Invention of Homosexuality. And he, he gives a great summary, or she, she quotes a great summary of the history um, of homosexuality that, that for, for the longest time, it's been 
categorize his behavior as something that people did uh, versus the transition that, that it's now something that has become an unalterable identity. Uh, from ancient times, uh, people have engaged in same-sex behavior, and the term homosexual was used to describe acts that anybody could perform, uh, not as an unchanging uh, condition or an essential identity. It referred to an action and not a category of a person. So in the, Piercy talks about how in the 19th century as um, medical science was on the rise uh, and, and science became to define sexuality, the moral terms right and wrong were changed to the supposedly objective terms healthy and deviant. And science then began to, uh, to categorize homosexuality as, as a divergent psychological type that was innate and unchanging. In an article reviewing the Obergefell versus Hodges Supreme Court case that legalized same-sex marriage, same -sex marriage, Ian Millshire states, quote, the single most important word in Justice Anthony Kennedy's opinion for the court is the word immutable. He uses the word twice, once in an offhand statement that sexual orientation is an immutable nature, nature and again in a more pointed statement that, quote, psychiatrists and others recognized that sexual orientation is both a normal expression of human sexuality and immutable. Now, Piercy states that, and think about it, that, that was only a few years ago, right? Piercy states that the science, though, is already changing with recent studies showing that sexual desire is more fluid than people thought. Lisa Diamond, who identifies as a, le as a lesbian, She's a researcher with the American Psychological Association. And as she was researching this, she discovered to her own great surprise that sexual feelings are not fixed. Uh, they can be influenced by environment, culture, and context. And, and Diamond states bluntly, quote, we know it's not true. Queers have to stop saying, please help us. We were born this way and we can't change as an argument for legal standing. And... So the idea then is that sexual fluidity means that we, the way we interpret our sexual feelings and desires can be influenced by social forces. I want to read a, an illustration here from the book. This is Love Thy Body, page 168. <clears throat> and uh, it's talking about how we interpret our sexual feelings. Timothy Keller offers this thought experiment of the Anglo-Saxon warrior versus the Manhattan urbanite. Quote, Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that he will say, no, that's, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now, imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He will look at the aggression and think, that's not who I want to be, and will seek deliverance and therapy and anger management programs. He will look at his sexual desire, however, and conclude, that is who I am. So what's Keller saying in this thought experiment? He says that we do not get our identity simply from within. Rather, we receive some interpretive moral grid 
lay it down over our various feelings and impulses and sift through that. The grid helps us decide which feelings are me and should be expressed and which are not and should not be, right? So Piercy makes the point that humans are not self-existent defining beings, right? Self-defining beings. We all look to outside sources uh, about who we are and how we should live. So, so much of our confusion on what to think about homosexuality uh, and transgenderism and these type of sexual issues is because we fail to make the connection to creation, right? Creation theology. God created two distinct sexes, two distinct genders, male and female, and they both have incredible value because they've been created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God designed male and female sexual organs to fit perfectly together. Right? We talked about this a couple years ago in our biblical sexuality class. God has designed the, the exact number of nerve receptors we have. He's designed our circulatory system, the central nervous system, that all correspond uh, to work together to deliver a maximum pleasure to men and women as husband and wife. Uh, Pastor Carol talked last week that sex involves the entire being, the, the whole person, spirit, soul, and body. And I was actually pleased with the statistic that he threw out. I'd never heard this, that the most sexually satisfied people in the world or in America are middle-aged, married, conservative Christians. That's awesome. I think that's great. Um, and I applaud that. So here's the thing. Th th this, this creation theology, um, it, it's, Piercy calls it, philosophers call it a teleological view of human sexuality. T telos is simply, the word means purpose or, or destination, right? It, it's a purpose-driven view of human sexuality that is morally good because of its design and its purpose. Back to the book I wanted to quote here. This, this whole thing about this idea of the interpretive grid that we have and how we can change our interpretive grid, right? And that's, that's what we're talking about is having a biblical worldview. And she talks about the idea of renewing our mind. And we talked about that verse, not being conformed to the world, Romans 12.1. Um, <clears throat> but... It's the idea of repentance and renewing your mind through the word of changing the interpretive grid. So um, she tells the story. This is Rebecca's story. It says, growing up, we lived in a rural area. My parents did not permit me to use the family car to visit my girlfriends in town. The only people motivated enough to drive out to see us were boys. As a result, through her teen years, Rebecca dated heavily but, but had no close friends. By the time I left for college, I was starving for female friendship. I met another student who was a lesbian, and I was instantly hooked. There was no hesitation wondering about it. I went back to my dorm room and knew immediately that this was what I wanted. Now, over the next decade, Rebecca had repeated girl crushes, even after she became a Christian and married a man. Quote, she says, I finally discussed it with my husband, she said. His response was, because you are biologically a woman, you can be certain that no matter what your feelings are right now, 
ultimately you will be more fulfilled by a man than by another woman. Then he added, it goes both ways. Because I'm biologically a man, no matter what my feelings may be, ultimately I, may be, I will be more fulfilled by a woman than by another man. That's how God created us. So it's possible to change the interpretive grid, right? And overlay what your feelings are with that, with that grid. And one of the things that uh, we talked about just a moment ago is sexual fluidity, right? And this is the issue of uh, what I'm about to talk about is, is how we engage people who are struggling. You know, sexual fluidity is an important tool the, that we can engage the topic with, but it doesn't account for everything, right, that people with same-sex attractions face. And Piercy makes a great point that no one chooses to have same-sex attractions just as no one chooses to be tempted by drugs or pornography. And many people who experience same-sex attraction have prayed for years for God to take it away. So we need to be sensitive about how we talk about this subject. Christopher Yen tells a story of his conversion from a lifestyle of drug use and homosexuality in his book, Out of a Far Country. And he writes, quote, I always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But actually, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. Rosaria Butterfield, who, who we've, we've talked about over the years, makes the point that before coming to Christ, as she was living as a, as a lesbian, she says her biggest sin wasn't her homosexuality. Her biggest sin was actually her unbelief. It's powerful, right? And that's a very important uh, thing to consider uh, and remember as we minister and build relationships with people who are living with same-sex attraction. And in fact, we, let's just be honest, we probably should frame this discussion rather under the bigger umbrella of sexual sin, where we stop trying to rank sexual sin, right, and realize that we all, if we're honest, have some degree of sexual brokenness, right, and that we've all fallen short of the glory of Christ in this area. I'm going to read another example here <coughs> that has to do with the issue of pastoral care. This section is called The Girl in the Tuxedo. This is Love Thy Body, page 175. <clears throat> Jean Lloyd, who once lived as a lesbian, explains what is not helpful to say to a person who's attracted to the same sex. And she talks about how in high school she was uh, into gender bending and went to a dance as uh, uh, wearing a, a tuxedo and playing with gender boundaries. Then she writes, I began to trust the one who knew the truth of my identity more than I did, who wrote his image into my being and body as female, and who designed sexuality and set boundaries upon it for my good. To her own great surprise, a flicker of heterosexual desire emerged, and today she's married with two children. Now, over the years, Lloyd says, many pastors have gone from fiery sermons on homosexuality to declarations of love, all well and good, but some of those pastors have gone further and rejected Biblical sexuality, biblical sexual morality itself as, quote, oppressive, unreasonable, or unkind. Hence, loving homosexual persons also comes to entail affirming and encouraging them in same-sex relationships and behaviors. Please realize this is not the loving response, Lloyd writes. What is generally loving is a response that helps, quote, helps me honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. I was born this way, female. God did 
God did create me a woman. Please don't fall into the Gnostic dualism that divides my spiritual life from the life that I have now that I live in my body. In other words, she's saying, don't put me in a, into a dualism that alienates me from my body. Now, did you notice that? The, 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 the combination of love and truth there. <clears throat> so as we deal with these issues, be sensitive to that. Be sensitive to where people are. And be also be sensitive to our own, um, uh, that we all haven't arrived in the area of our, of our sexuality. So that's the topic of homosexuality. Let's move to the uh, uh, issue of transgenderism. We talked about sexual flu fluidity uh, just a few moments ago, but fluidity now is a concept that's being applied to the person as a whole. And transgender has come to be an umbrella term uh, that covers new categories like gender queer, and that's people who are neither masculine nor feminine, bi-gender, pan-gender, gender fluid, and a whole host of other names. Piercy says on page 194, quote, young people today live in a society that prompts them to question their psychosexual identity as never before. Laws are being passed that treat sexual attraction and gender identity as a protected category like race and religion in public schools, businesses, housing, health care, and prisons, and even churches. Now, these are so-called SOGI laws. That's S-O-G-I, and that's in your notes. It stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Laws. And when we analyze the language, we find that they assume the same two-story divide, wor divided worldview that we've discussed up to now. Now, SOGI laws are based on the assumption that a person can be born in the wrong body. And in so doing, they set up this opposition between the body and an inner sense of being male or female, between the, the biological facts and subjective feelings. And today, the accepted treatment for many people is not to help persons change their feelings or their, their inner sense of gender identity to match their body, but rather through hormone surgery and surgery uh, to make those changes to match their feelings. You know, Piercy shares about an internet forum discussing transgenderism where one commentator, one commenter wrote, quote, what does some little bit of flesh between the legs matter? In other words, why should that make a difference of who you are? You know, young people today are, are really battling this. And man, many of them are embracing the idea that the physical, bo physical body is not part of the authentic self, uh, right? That the, that, the, that the main part of who we are as a person is the autonomous choosing self with freedom. Now, it's in this issue that the echoes of Gnosticism and Kant are front and center. <clears throat> Again, Piercy on page 197, she talks about a BBC video that features a young woman who identifies as non-binary saying, quote, it doesn't matter what, a, what living meat skeleton you've been born in, it's what you feel that defines you. Now, again, in this two-story worldview where we are today, all that counts is what you feel. It's now the body that's been demoted to nothing more than a meat skeleton. And no respect is given to the body, to its design, to its, quote, telos. And no dignity is, um, is conferred on the unique capabilities of male and female bodies, right? And the transgender narrative completely disassociates gender from biological sex. But your biological self is not as fluid as the transgender activists uh, have been arguing. 
In fact, as of now, there's no conclusive scientific evidence that transgenderism is caused by genes or any other biological factor. In fact, the science shows just the opposite. As we talked about, their incredible efforts are underway right now with hormone therapy and, and surgical pr procedures that actually do violence to the body, uh, only to change the externals, only to change the appearance. The DNA and the chromosomes remain unchanged at the cellular level. This is so important, guys. You've got to get this. Internally, in, in your biology, your cellular level, nothing changes. I watched an outstanding TED talk that uh, Piercy references in the book uh, by cardiologist Paula Johnson. And basically, in her research, she's found that every cell has a sex all the way down to the cellular level. So uh, I put that in your notes. I recommend that you watch it. It's only about um, <coughs> 20 minutes long. And what she's found in her research is that women receive subpar health care because they're being treated as men, specifically in the areas of heart disease, specifically in the areas of lung cancer, and third, in the areas of depression. So this has life and death issues outside of just your sexuality. Every cell has a sex. <clears throat> Transgender policies are leading to a postmodern view of, of psychosexual identity. According to Judith Butler, gender is a free-floating variable that shifts according to personal preference. She calls it a fiction, a fabrication that can be remade at will. This has been dubbed the pomosexual view. Pomo is short for postmodern. One author says, quote, we're seeing a challenge to the old modernist way of thinking that says, this is who I am uh, right now. And I'm sorry, the, the modernist way of thinking says, this is who I am, period, right? To, a, to the postmodern view that says, this is who I am right now, regardless of appearance. And uh, she talks about in the book that on an NPR program profiling college students, they talk about how, how, how this is playing out in real life on college campuses. And in interviewing these college students, she basically discovered uh, just through, through the program, through interviews, that students had one gender for one event during the day and would show up or claim that they could show up at another event as a totally different gender and would be demanded to be recognized as such. So it, it's really pretty crazy that's out there, right? So we have to understand what's, what's driving this. Um, you can see the, the, the graphic there that uh, shows that where we are related to this issue, the, it's what Piercy calls as being reduced, two forms of reductionism. Modernism on the bottom and top is postmodernism. And so what are some of the implications of this? Well, here's one, sex education. Uh, the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States uh, is one of the authorities on sex education for public schools. Uh, in, in some of their recent literature says that people's understanding of their gender may change over the course of their lifetimes. So again, this is the type of thing that's affecting, affecting sex education in schools. Uh, another implication, another way that this is playing out is women's rights. 
many, many people have fought heroically over the years to, to fight forced child marriage, uh, to, to fight infanticide, uh, to fight genital mutilation. Uh, and and, and one, one human rights worker in the book that, that Piercy talks about says that uh, now she's being called transphobic to even label these, these victims as women and girls. Uh, we're, we're seeing it in another way of playing out in sports. I forget exactly where it was, but uh, there's been a case where um, transgender girls who are physically boys are running uh, track and field races as girls and are dominating. They're, they're destroying the competition because typically male bodies are larger, faster, and stronger. And then uh, a, another area that this is going to start playing out is in the definition of family. And a lot of um, documentation on new births and birth certificates and things, um, you know, terms like mother and father are going to be going away. And this is important. And, and Piercy makes a great point here because the family is what she calls a pre-political institution, right? The, the idea of children being with their parents and the, the, the idea, the concept of a mother and father are, are pre-political natural rights that the state recognized, right? It's, 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 it exists before the state. But what's happening now as the, the terms are, are, are neutralized and removed, you're moving from natural rights that existed before the state to legal rights. And so if you follow the logic, you only have the rights that the state chooses to grant you. So if they're legal rights, you can lose them. Again, we've talked about that related to abortion. It's who defines personhood. It's the person or whoever has the most power. <clears throat> I'm moving to a close here, and I want to I read a, a story here, uh, an article that I came across <clears throat> um, as I was preparing for this class. And, and I'll be honest with you guys. Uh, you know, I, I follow Nancy Piercy and some other thinkers on Twitter. <clears throat> and you can... Every day, find something new that blows your mind. It, it's happening that fast, and the volume is just unprecedented. <clears throat> this is a um, story from the Daily Mail. It's a, it's a British newspaper online. There's a documentary that's been following a transgender man through pregnancy with his now nearly two-year-old baby that's going to be premiered here the next couple of months. Now, it's going to take some, some thinking to follow through here. <coughs> Freddie McDowell is 32. He was born biologically female. Therefore, he has a uterus and is able to conceive and carry a baby to full term. He transitioned to male in his early 20s. He says, quote, this is a film about me having a baby, but what I, but what I feel like I'm going through is not just me having a baby or pregnancy, it's a total loss of myself. Uh, and Freddie's mother tells a documentary, her first thought when the child she raised as a girl told her he wanted to, told her that he wanted to be a boy, the, the, the first thought was that this, this means that no grandchildren from Freddie. Now, despite being told that he would be infertile from the moment he started taking hormones, at the age of 25, Freddie wanted a baby. And after years of really struggling with this decision, uh, he decided that he wanted to carry his own child himself and began to conceive. Now, this is going to be hard to follow. So 
he's uh, biologically a female, right? And um, began transitioning, now is legally male. But when the transition happened and um, he began the process, uh, had surgery to remove breasts, but maintained um, the, the reproductive organs, never had a hysterectomy. And so he conceived using a sperm donor and stopped taking the testosterone to become pregnant. Periods returned, facial hair uh, lessened, the hips widened, voice became more, more feminine sounding. And then he told the guardian, quote, every time I think about it, I think, what the F am I doing? In the beginning, he sobs into the camera in the middle of the night, and he says, I feel like an effing alien. In the run-up to the birth, Freddie admitted all he wanted to do was close his eyes and get on the other side of this experience. And his mother tells the documentary she feared for her, son's, um, for her son as he opened himself to transphobic abuse. And the mom broke down in tears as she said, as a trans man to carry your own child is a, as a, as a trans man to carry your own child is a scary and daunting experience. You just worry for your child. You want them to be happy. And Freddie's mom, recounting her own pregnancy, said, "I loved being pregnant. Everyone should experience it, especially men." Okay, it's hard to follow, but that's what's happening out there. Okay. And this is a gut-wrenching story, and, and our hearts should break as we hear this. So what do we do with situations like this? Right? How, how do we, as the church, as believers of Jesus Christ, how do we show compassion to people who are struggling with these issues or, or they're feeling pressured by the homosexual culture out there to despise their own body and reject their biological identity? Here's some things that, some practical things that we can do. Number one, first, we need to see, as we've been hearing lately uh, from Pastor Tim, we need to see people as God sees them. Not from the flesh, but as someone for whom Christ died for. Compassion, not fear, not anger, not judgment, but compassion. That's number one. Number two, as Christians, we need to ensure that we have a biblical worldview. I mean, I, I hope that this class has made you dig deep inside and see, uh, do, do you have a two-story understanding of truth? Right? What are the areas in your life where you've, you've separated uh, things into an upstairs-downstairs? Um, and listen, remember those statistics from week one about Christians and some of, some of their views on some of these issues. I mean, it's an issue inside the church, so, so, so be sure that you're thinking correctly on this issue. Number three, we need to be well-versed in the gospel, right? We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. It needs to just overflow out of us. Uh, we need to, need to learn how to communicate that with, with gentleness and respect, communicate what having an identity in Christ means. And, and just a side note, identity is something that we receive. It's not something we create, okay? And, and, and get a hold of creation theology, Right? Let that inform how you think about these issues. And number four, keep love and truth together. Mm. Uh, just one more moment here, and I'm going to close with this, um, this, this story and this challenge from Nancy Piercy. 
Walt Heyer is a former transsexual who started as a cross-dresser, then underwent sex reassignment surgery to live as a woman. After eight years, he became a Christian and eventually transitioned back to living as a man. He discovered that changing his clothing, hairstyle, social security card, driver's license, and even his genitals did not change who he was. In his words, he came to realize that, quote, the restoration of my sanity would only come by reversing the gender change and going back to living as the male God had meant me to be. I was born a man, and I was still a man. My gender never changed. The biological fact is that no one can change from one gender to another except in appearance. Our only choice is whether we accept our biological sex as a gift from God or reject it. When Hire was still presenting as a woman, he began attending church. Tragically, the first church he visited asked him to leave. The senior pastor actually drove to his home, knocked on his door, and said, quote, we don't want your kind in our church. By God's grace, Walt found another congregation that accepted him and supported him through several painful, tumultuous years of emotional and spiritual healing as he went through the process of detransitioning. Piercy, I want to close with this question. Is your church ready to show love and acceptance to those whose lives may have been deeply damaged by postmodern sexual theories. All right, lots to think about. So let's go ahead, and we're doing pretty well on time. Let's break up into our small groups, and then if we have time at the end, we'll do a Q&A, we'll, we'll take any questions that you might have had. So let's go ahead and move to small groups pretty quickly. Thanks.